The following presentation was recorded at SEPCON 97, the third annual conference for the separation of school and state alliance in Fresno, California. It is copyrighted by the Alliance, 1997, but you are welcome to make copies as gifts for your friends. Are we on? Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to SEPCON 97, the third annual conference for the separation of school and state alliance. This session is entitled, How the D.A.R.E. Program Weakens Your Child's Moral Restraints, um, with the presenter, Mr. William Colson, with the responders, Mr. James Bovard and Mr. Sam Blumenfeld. Introducing the uh, presenters today is uh, Mr. Jim Hill of Portland, Oregon. He is the state director for American Family Association. Mr. Jim Hill. Thank you. It's my distinct pleasure to introduce our presenter, Dr. William R. Colson. He is a licensed psychologist who is a director of the Research Council on Ethnopsychology. In the 1980s, Dr. Colson served as a member of the Technical Advisory Panel on Drug Education Curricula for the U.S. Department of Education. He has also served as consultant on ethnopsychology for the Federal Bureau of Prisons and the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention of the U.S. Department of Justice. In the 1960s, Dr. Colson was research associate to Carl Rogers and fellow humanistic psychologist Abraham Maslow at the Western Behavioral Sciences Institute in La Jolla, California. Dr. Colson has lectured widely since then on academic illiteracy, speaking throughout the United States and in Germany, Austria, Switzerland, the United Kingdom, Ireland, Canada, Trinidad, Australia, and New Zealand. Welcome now, Dr. Colson. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Jim. That was very kind. Um, my script begins, uh, How the D.A.R.E. Program Weakens Your Child's Moral Restraints, Thanks to Marshall and his staff and Jim Hill. Uh, <laughs> and what I realized is that I ran two things together. The title of the talk is How the D.A.R.E. Program Weakens Your Child's Moral Restraints. And my thanks to Marshall and the staff uh, for allowing me to come here to Jim Hill for that nice introduction. And I would also like you to acknowledge uh, my oldest son, Jeannie, and I have uh, seven grown children. And this is David Colson who's going to do the overheads. David. Uh, the father of three fine young men from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Datelined uh, Jamestown, New York, October 31st, uh, 1997, was an article in the New York Times written by Jane Gross. Uh, it begins as follows. Inside the Civic Center here uh, on Wednesday night at a panel discussion called How Do We Protect Our Kids? Apple-cheeked uh, high school girls with shiny blonde page boy haircuts crew neck sweaters and pleated skirts ushered people to their seats. These were the class officers at Jamestown High School, the good girls with their parents, here to ask questions of a somber panel of AIDS experts. On the street outside were the girls and the friends of the girls who had slept with Nushan J. Williams, infected with AIDS and charged with a deadly swath 
of predatory sex here in Chautauqua County. They were the ones who had the stories. The more lurid, the better to the television talk show hosts who were offering limousine rides and bright lights to those who would talk, unquote the New York Times. The work that Carl Rogers and Harold Lyon, let's put up the first one, David, and then switch quickly to the second one. The work that Carl Rogers and Hal Lyon and I did back in the 1960s and early 70s eventually became the talk shows of trash television. As everyone's restraints were loosened and confession became very public. This loosening of moral restraints hadn't been our intention as psychologists. We'd wanted to do good work, much as today's DARE officers uh, want to do good work. But a perverting principle was uh, operating in our work with the schools in the 60s and early 70s before we recognized it and quit. Simone Weil, next one, Dave. Simone Weil gets at what that principle is in this quotation. Nothing is so beautiful, nothing so continually fresh and surprising, so full of sweet and perpetual ecstasy as the good, the true, and the beautiful. No desert is so dreary, monotonous, and boring as evil. But with fantasy, it's the other way around. Fictional good is boring and flat, while evil is varied, intriguing, attractive, and full of charm. It's the girls from the street who get invited to be on trash television, not the good girls. Now, D.A.R.E. purports to be drug prevention, specifically drug abuse resistance education by name. It is delivered by uniformed police officers who have received two weeks of facilitator training. Carl Rogers and two colleagues and I started the country's first and for a long time largest facilitator training program in La Jolla at the Western Behavioral Sciences Institute. D.A.R.E. is presented mostly to fifth and sixth graders, though Dare America threatens to expand it from kindergarten to 12th grade in the near future. And it is offered, I am told, in 70 to 80 percent <coughs> of the school districts in our country. Says the New York Times article about Jamestown, New York, on the subject of drugs in that small town, quote, drug dealers come here from New York City from Detroit and Buffalo to ply their trade. Decked out in gold chains and dreadlocks, these men seduce vulnerable small-town girls. So said several of the girls we interviewed. So says the Times. Now the Times uh, spoke of the good kids of Jamestown earlier. The school class officers and the like with their shiny blonde page boys, their crew neck sweaters, and their pleated skirts. But the good girls didn't get interviewed by the Times, let alone invited to go to trash television in New York City. Like the talk show host, the Times wanted to talk to the other girls, the seduced girls and their friends, who had reason to worry that they were shortly going to die. The children of the street 
the Times identified these other girls, somewhat surprisingly, as wayward girls, the wayward girls of Jamestown. In the non-directive classroom discussion circle, as seen in D.A.R.E. and similar programs like Quest and Magic Circle, and now there is even a program from R.J. Reynolds. They've killed off Joe Camel, but they've got a program called Right Decisions Right Now that they offer as a follow-up to D.A.R.E. D.A.R.E. is offered to um, nine, 9 and 10-year-olds, and or 10 and 11-year-olds, rather, in sixth grade, and Right Decisions Right Now comes to your children free, courtesy of uh, the uh, parents of the late Joe Camel uh, for kids uh, from, from ages 12 through 14. In these classroom discussion circles, um, the influence runs not from the good kids to the wayward kids, as everybody, including I think the wayward kids, would prefer. But the influence, the research confirms, runs from the wayward kids to the good. This on the Simone Weil principle, and confirmed many times in numerous research investigations of the effect of non-directive classroom discussion circles. In a 1969 article in Psychology Today, titled Community, the Group Comes of Age, Carl Rogers the father of non-directive psychotherapy explained how this works out in groups. He said, um, imagine a person attending his or her first human potentials workshop. Human potentialism is another name for the magic circle quest, right decisions, right now, dare kind of discussion group, but normally for adults. Imagine someone attending their first such group, and after the initial milling around for a phase of the group, Rogers wrote, the first significant event will be the expression of, quote, negatively toned feelings. This will lead to the realization, he said, that one's learning is up to oneself and no one else. It's this realization and the behavior change that often follows this realization that leads promoters of dare-like programs to say that circle-based education is better than traditional classroom education because the children will come by a sense of ownership of their own group experience in the circle. They will become active learners, no longer passive recipients of the teacher's wisdom. But Rogers says that this freedom to learn, as his book title has it, is necessarily a high-risk activity. He writes, quote, it may seem puzzling that what is most likely to follow the expression of negative feelings is that a member will reveal himself to the group now in a significant way. The reason, um, no doubt, the reason for this, no doubt, is that the member has come to realize that this is no, that this is in part his group. He can help make of the group whatever he wishes. He has also observed that negative feelings have been expressed and usually have been accepted or assimilated without catastrophic results. Now to ensure this outcome, all of the programs, DARE especially, has a rule called no put-downs. It doesn't matter what a child says, if they say drugs are good, no put-downs. Criticism is not allowed. Everything is accepted and the children begin to test the limits of this acceptance and, and ideally they find there are no such limits. 
The individual then, writes Rogers, realizes that there is freedom in this group, albeit a risky freedom. A climate of trust is beginning to develop in the group, so he says the member gambles. What does the group member gamble? Often he gambles solidarity with the relatives and other important back home associates, most especially solidarity with his parents. Thomas Gordon writes about that. Gordon was Carl Rogers' most famous student and created methods based on Rogers' non-directive psychotherapy, methods called parent effectiveness training, teacher effectiveness training, leader effectiveness training, and youth effectiveness training. In these programs, he not only uh, described the manner of wayward children, making of it a model, but in my opinion, provoked the behavior of wayward children in the previously normal. Here are three quotations from Thomas Gordon. This first one from his 1970 book, Parent Effectiveness Training. Parents are guilty, Gordon asserts, of the hard sell. No wonder that in most families, kids are desperately saying to their parents, get off my back, stop hassling me. I know what you think. You don't need to keep telling me every day. Stop lecturing me too much. Goodbye. Gordon did not know most families. He was a psychological clinician, but he made a claim about uh, the children and parents of most families. And in the next quotation from Thomas Gordon, he says that in TET classes, teacher effectiveness training, the following questions help teachers clarify their true values. Do I have the right to choose my own values independent of what my parents or other important people believe? Must I simply comply with what my parents said I should believe? And the implicit and later explicit answer is, of course, no. And finally, this quote from Gordon in 1974 again in teacher effectiveness training. In recent years, many people have benefited greatly by participating in a relatively new group activity most frequently called values clarification workshops. For example, write a list of your strongest beliefs, the things you are most willing to stand up for. Ask yourself how you came to value these things. Are they really what you value and believe or what someone, perhaps a parent, talked you into or forced you into believing, discovering that some of your values are not based on your own real experiences but borrowed from, your, from authority figures may free you, says Gordon, to discard them. Children exposed to values clarification be begin to move in the direction of waywardness. It's that simple. Because no parent wants their child to be wayward. And if you can locate in a values clarification exercise what your parent wants, then it's incumbent on you to do the opposite. Freedom to learn, it was called. The D.A.R.E. method is simply values clarification as the United States Bureau of Justice Assistance, which promotes D.A.R.E. since 1983, readily admits the D.A.R.E. method, values clarification, undercuts the possibility of good influence by the officers themselves on the students who need it. If these students are bright enough, they will figure out that the D.A.R.E. facilitators offer themselves on, as authorities on drugs. And that and that this influence must eventually be discarded in the name of authenticity. All good influences are to be set aside 
in the name of authenticity. Now remember that Rogers said that in the climate of psychological freedom, the group member gambles. The gamble begins, Rogers says, with letting the group know, quote, some deeper part of oneself. One man tells of the trap in which he finds himself, feeling that communication between himself and his wife is hopeless. A priest experiences the expresses the anger that he has bottled up. He has suffered unreasonable treatment at the hands of a superior. Note that all of the examples are negative. A scientist, a scientist at, um, at, the, at the head of a large research department finds the courage in the group to speak of his painful isolation, to tell the group that he has never, ever had a friend. By the time he finishes his account, he is shedding some of the tears of sorrow for himself that he has held in for many years. A woman of 40 tells of her absolute inability to free herself from the grip of her mother. It has begun, Rogers says. It has begun the process that workshop members uh, that a workshop member has called the journey into the center of the self. He says it is often a painful experience. This is dare, ladies and gentlemen. The term facilitator is applied to the person who helps the discussion go deeper. The facilitator says, looks like you're feeling some pain, Henry. Can you talk about it? Our president is genuinely good at this pain thing. He has been called our national therapist in chief, except uh, when he says, looks like you're feeling some pain, he quickly adds, and I'll talk about it. Um, Jane Gross, who reported the story for, on, in Jamestown for the Times, was critical of the high school principal, Mr. Benjamin Gustafson, for not doing more to integrate the wayward girls and the good girls of the school and for resisting, quote, offers from AIDS counselors eager to visit the school. Frankly, I commend Mr. Gustafson's uh, reticence. You know what the counselors would do if they were allowed in, pushing the pushing academics to the side of the room, they would turn the chairs into a circle and they would um, mutter facilitisms like, I guess I get the feeling that you resent your mother for her iron grip. Designed to get everyone talking about their experiences, that's what these techniques are for. The unhappier the experiences, the better. And of course, the girls from the street have the really interesting stories of unhappy experience to tell, and gradually their reports take over the interaction in the classroom. Jane Gross noted that, in fact, quote, two of the girls who said they had sex with Mr. Williams slipped into seats in the auditorium after the program had begun in Jamestown. They rolled their eyes at what they heard, and they left in minutes. Their friends were in the lobby, Gross writes, cutting deals with television producers. Some of the girls were courted in a downtown Mexican restaurant, encouraged to telephone friends who were HIV infected. A bartender in the restaurant, also a substitute teacher at the high school, begged the girls not to follow these new Pied Pipers who wooed them with promises of lunch at the Hard Rock Cafe. Some girls confessed to lying about what had happened to them. That's how badly they wanted to go. And that's how badly the experience in the D.A.R.E. class is, uh, is felt by the youngsters who do want so much to belong. They're used to getting A's in math and English, and now that the subject has turned into personal experience, they'll get A's in personal experience, too, and the wayward will show them how. 
Some of them will invent experiences, others will go out and have them. Let's do the next one here, David. Len Cannon, a reporter for Dateline NBC on the 2nd of February, was shown on television interviewing General Barry McCaffrey, our national drug czar, on the subject of D.A.R.E. And uh, Len uh, pointed out to the general uh, a study that the general wasn't entirely familiar with. Quote, the effect on suburban D.A.R.E. students in Illinois was that students used more drugs following D.A.R.E. They were more violent and they had a more negative attitude toward police than the non-DARE students. Said the drugs are, oh, that's twaddle. You know, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't fit our experience. That's the theory called experientialism. Len Cannon went on. He said, so you discount this study altogether? And the general said, sure, yeah. And Len said, and you ignore any research that shows that it doesn't work? And McCaffrey said, well, you know, the biggest research I've got is to watch a graduation in Los Angeles with Rosie Greer and I, and parents who are Laotian and Hispanic and gringos, and we're all just so positive about what these kids are doing. That's the theory of experiential learning, that what suits me is good, and what doesn't suit me is, well, twaddle. Experientialism allows programs for school children to be sold, given away, or defended without research support. It's the same philosophy introduced as a to a teaching order of nuns by the Western Behavioral Sciences team that Carl Rogers and I shared leadership of in the late 1960s. It's the same in philosophy employed by Joe Hart, one of Carl Rogers' other famous students with Tom Gordon, um, in, in which he wrote as follows, quote, a new age may, might be coming in which faith in science will be replaced just as faith in the church was replaced. Reliance upon outside rational and experimental uh, Proofs may yield to inner intuitional and experiential proofs. D.A.R.E. is the largest present incursion into the school with the philosophy and methods of experientialism. It doesn't work. It will be the undoing of many good children. Thank you. Now we'll hear from our first responder, Mr. James Bovard. James Bovard frequently contributes to the editorial pages of the Wall Street Journal, Playboy, and American Spectator, and writes occasionally for other national major newspapers. Mr. Bovard was the 1995 co-recipient of the Thomas Zaz Reward for Civil Liberties Work, which is awarded by the Center for Independent Thought. The following year, he received the 1996 Freedom Fund Award from the Firearms Civil, Defense, Civil Rights Defense Fund of the National Rifle Association. Finally, he has authored four books which have been recognized nationally, Shakedown in 1995, Lost Rights in 1994, The Fair Trade Fraud in 1991, and The Farm Fiasco in 19, 1989. After his most recent book, Shakedown, Forbes magazine declared Mr. Bovard, quote, at the top of any bureaucrat's most wanted list. Dr. Bovard. Thanks for the kind intro. Appreciate that. Um, I want to focus on two points in the uh, brief time I've got here. First, Dare's role in breaking up families, and second, Dare's power in suppressing the national media. Uh, there was 
I've done some stories on DARE over the years, and it's surprised me to see stories from across the country of how DARE policemen go into a classroom and encourage children to become informants against their own parents or against their own relatives. And this is not an accident. I mean, this is something which the uh, DARE program people have known about for a long time. For instance, uh, it's been mentioned in federal uh, reports on how DARE operates, that uh, this is a uh, fairly uh, not infrequent occurrence. Um, I managed to get hold of some teacher guides, confidential teacher guides for DARE, and um, it was interesting some of the lesson plans the children were given. And one of them was the, uh, the children were encouraged, they were handing out, they handed out this little sheet and the children were supposed to circle the people who, who they would contact if someone gave them uh, some pill, for instance. And then they were also uh, told how to list people to contact if someone asked them to keep a secret. And one of the, you know, they had a choice, the mother, the father, or they could also tell the law enforcement, police. And the whole idea that if somebody tells a kid a secret, he should run to the nearest policeman, you know, it's just uh, so out of character for what the uh, American values usually are. And it's interesting to read some of the stories about some of these entrapment operations, uh, because very often the uh, children are told that the, uh, that the parents will not be arrested, that the parents will not have any troubles, and it doesn't work out that way. The uh, police come, the parents are arrested, the, uh, sometimes the parents lose their jobs, the family's broken up, and in many of these cases for very minor, drug very minor amounts of drug uh, violation, which are, you know, like it or not, not uncommon in American society. You know, it's interesting, DARE has been around since 1983. It has not been very effective. They've had a lot of, uh, a lot of studies that have shown that. However, uh, DARE is still very popular. And a lot of people have been mystified why there's not been more of a backlash against DARE. Well, part of the reason is that DARE has been able to arm twist the uh, national media in, uh, in a number of cases. In 1994, I, was, uh, doing a, I, I did a story as a freelancer for the Washington Post Outlook section focusing on these, uh, on the cases of uh, dare entrapment, on children turning in their, their parents. Uh, the story was accepted, it went back and forth in editing, and the Outlook section comes out on Sunday uh, Sundays. On Friday night, I saw the final version of the story, and it looked, you know, it, was, it looked pretty good. I picked up the paper on Sunday morning, and it turned out what the Washington Post had done was to add six paragraphs to the paper that it got straight from dare. And the six paragraphs that they never cleared with me, uh, six paragraphs out of the blue because the uh, Post said that they were concerned that the story needed to be balanced. I mean, some people said that's kind of a novelty for the Washington Post. Uh, and, and this was being done in, in, in an editorial section where the stories are uh, normally not balanced. I mean, you've got a point of view and you have your arguments for the point of view. And it turned out one of the things that the Post added was that one of the parents that got busted from the entrapment was uh, the uh, Post said, that the, uh, it wasn't a case of mere possession, there was evidence that the parents were drug traffickers. You know, this is something that the Post got from Dare, never checked, put it in the story, and got sued for libel. Rightfully so. You know, the uh, Post got hammered, I, I, I don't know the exact amount, but they got their nose bloodied in a big way in this case, and this is what we have libel laws for. You don't go around saying people are drug traffickers, especially taking the word of an organization that, uh, that had already victimized those parents. And this is not an isolated instance. There was a, a great story by Steve Glass about six months ago in the, in the New Republic that showed a pattern of this across the country. Uh, there was a quote from the Dateline story a few minutes ago. What people don't realize is that that Dateline story was ready to go uh, almost a year before it aired, but Dare continually put pressure on NBC, and NBC caved again and again and again. The, the folks at NBC only aired that story after Steve Glass's story 
came out because they were so embarrassed to be exposed in the New Republic for being totally cowardly towards this uh, law enforcement uh, pseudo-education group. And there are a lot of other cases around the country that uh, have been uh, turned up like this. A number of college professors who have been critical of D.A.R.E. have been hounded by the organization. Uh, there was a, a, a TV producer in Missouri who did a segment criticizing D.A.R.E. Uh, the, uh, apparently the local D.A.R.E. officers gave out his name in class, and uh, he was flooded with phone calls from kids who would uh, stay on the phone and read him their D.A.R.E. lessons. And uh, somebody came and painted spray paint on his house, crack user inside. Uh, there was a, a process of massive intimidation. Uh, and this is, again, not unusual. There have been studies that showed, a study out in the Midwest that showed that in 59% in all the D.A.R.E. classes, an accusation of drug use is reported, and police are uh, bound by law to follow up on these accusations. So there's a system of informants has been created, and most importantly, the habit of turning children into informants. The habit of uh, turning children, uh, basically, uh, for the children to have more trust in the government than their own families and then their own parents, that's one of uh, D.A.R.E.'s most adverse effects. Anyhow. Yes. Uh, it's primarily from the government. It's, it's primarily uh, federal, state, and local government. It's um, probably not the best use of tax dollars. Yeah, it's, yeah. It, it's primarily tax dollars. There are a lot of groups that have gotten on board because there has got such a um, touchy-feely image. I mean, there's been some great propaganda for D.A.R.E., but I guess I'm supposed to stop now, so. Our second responder is uh, Samuel L. Blumenfeld. Mr. Blumenfeld, author of seven books on education, is including Is Public Education Necessary in 1981 and the NEA, The Trojan Horse in American Education, 1984. He graduated from the City College of New York, studied in France for two years, and then worked for 10 years as an editor in the New York book publishing industry. One reviewer of his book, The Whole Language, OBE Fraud, published in 1996, wrote, Blumenfeld superbly documents the government education establishment's seemingly deliberate effort to corrupt and sabotage educational excellence in our country. Mr. Blumenfeld's writings appear in diverse publications. He has taught in both public and private schools, including one for children with learning and behavioral problems. He edits his own monthly newsletter that monitors trends in American education. And now, Mr. Blumenfeld. Thank you. Uh, just some facts about DARE. Uh, DARE is an acronym, D-A-R-E, for Drug Abuse Resistance Education. Apparently, it was started by Daryl Gates and the Los Angeles Police Department uh, some, I suppose, 11 or 12 years ago, and has since expanded to thousands of schools in 50 states. In this program, uniformed police officers uh, spend an hour per week for 17 weeks with school children, mostly fifth and sixth graders purportedly educating them to resist drug abuse and often developing close personal attachments in the process. Now, of course, it's a, they use values clarification as their uh, technique and, and uh, non-directive uh, uh, psychotherapy. Now, one of the beautiful uh, aspects of homeschooling is that it permits you to recognize what is patently absurd 
in public education. Take, for example, the D.A.R.E. program. Can you imagine homeschooling parents inviting a local, uniformed policeman facilitator to come into their home to educate their children about drugs? They'd have to set aside a room where this would take place without the parents being present because the children would be told by the policeman teacher to spy on their parents and, you know, and then turn them in if they found drugs in the house. The policeman will show the children a video on the, quote, land of decisions and choices, unquote, and will help the children, uh, quote, prize and act upon their own uh, feelings, uh, their own freely chosen values. He will also tell them, quote, you can smoke dope if you like, as long as you've considered the consequences, unquote. Can you imagine parents telling their children, you can smoke dope as long as you accept the consequences? It's the consequences which compel parents to tell their children, under no circumstances may you smoke dope, period. <clears throat> Dare does not tell children that they must not use drugs. It tells them that they have the right to say no, implying that they also have the right to say yes. Now, uh, Dare teaches the child that he has the right to say no to drugs. That's like telling a child that he has a right not to commit a crime. Now, what kind of screwy ethic is that? You know. Now, incidentally, Dare gets about $750 million from the federal government through the Drug-Free Schools and, Communi and Communities Act. And um, the thing about Dare is that it doesn't work because all of the... Uh, uh, all of the studies have shown that there's no difference between youngsters who have had the D.A.R.E. program and those who haven't. And in fact, if you want to know what the present situation with drugs is, here's a clipping from the Boston Globe of uh, September 9th, 1997, just a couple of months ago. Drugs are a fixture in most high schools, survey asserts. The vast majority of U.S. high school students report that illegal drugs are kept, used, or sold on school grounds, according to a survey released yesterday, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The point is that the system doesn't work. Dare doesn't work because it uses values clarification. It tells kids you have the right to choose your own values. That's what it's teaching. What Tom Gordon has uh, uh, has taught them. You have the right to choose your own values as if, uh, oh, yeah, I can choose my own values, but it doesn't tell you what values are about. But in any case, uh, it opens the child up to the, uh, the world of the, of, of the drug culture, very simply. And uh, the interesting thing about the D.A.R.E. people is that even though they know they've been criticized, even though they've, they've been shown by studies that it doesn't work, they have no interest in changing the program. They have no interest in trying to find out why it doesn't work. 
After all, there, there must be a decent drug program around, something that says, hey, you can take drugs. You may not take drugs. It's absolutely forbidden. It's illegal, period. No, but uh, they persist and they criticize uh, people like Mr. Bovard and uh, trash others because they've decided that uh, D.A.R.E. is the way it is. And I'll tell you why. There's $750 million at stake. That's why it thrives and that's why you see all these bumper stickers, you know, D.A.R.E. on the back of a Suburban or something like that. and looks good and it sounds great. We're all against drugs, aren't we? But most people haven't the faintest idea what the program is doing. It's not helping our kids, period. I get eight more minutes. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks uh, to you both for those comments. Uh, I, of course, have read Sam's books and I've, I've read uh, Mr. Bovard's uh, material on D.A.R.E., and I've been very impressed by it. Uh, there was an unfortunate event earlier this month, and that is that the Family Research Council, that wonderful organization headed by Gary Bauer, uh, came out with a qualified endorsement for D.A.R.E., writing, uh, mend it, don't end it. I think it's a terrible mistake, and I've told them so. It's because of values clarification. You really cannot fix the D.A.R.E. program because the whole philosophy behind it is wrong. It's the philosophy of subjective morality. It's the philosophy that says in times of rapid social change we have to look inward for guidance. Uh, David, uh, next to the last uh, uh, one that I just gave you right there uh, before, I think is, uh, yeah, I have grown to the place next to the bottom. There, yeah. Uh, I mentioned uh, poor Hal Lyon. He did a book for us. Rogers and I did this series of 17 books, and Hal was at the time that he did uh, the book uh, Learning to Feel, Feeling to Learn, uh, was uh, Deputy uh, Commissioner for Education when we had the U.S. Office of Education in Washington before the Department of Education. He got caught up in the spirit of experiential education, of values, clarification, wrote uh, three books, and in one of them, uh, Carl Rogers wrote the forewords uh, for all of them. In one of them, he wrote uh, what, he, what he had learned in his own group work, uh, his own dare-like experiences, though this was long before dare. I have grown, he wrote, to the place where I now have what might be called a religion of the self, and I believe that most of the answers are within myself, and that learning to tap the love and beauty and strength within myself is really a worshiping of the inner self. In essence, I believe in God because I believe in me. I now meditate to the God within my own inner self, and each time I meditate, I discover new resources of boundless love and beauty uh, within myself. Uh, well, uh, Hal, um, and he doesn't mind my telling you this story, because it's a matter of public record. It was on the front page of the Washington Post back in 1981, got caught up in the spirit of uh, personal growth and self-exploration and expression, as I said, and developed a, a moonlighting business when he was at the Department of Education. If you had children in gifted and talented programs in the 70s, they were under the influence of Hal Lyon because he was head of federal gifted and talented programs. He was a gifted and talented young man himself, decided having traveled up and down Abe Maslow's hierarchy of human needs to develop a business on the side um, as a professional pimp. 
um, he was uh, now going to fulfill his entrepreneurial needs and his sexual needs at the same time. And he found a young woman who had never been a prostitute and persuaded her that that was a good reason to try. How can you say you don't like it if you haven't done it? And they ran an ad in the underground newspaper right here in Arlington, and the first people to show up, they hadn't anticipated this, was the Vice Squad, um, who clamped the cuffs on Hal Lyon, the uh, deputy commissioner of the U.S. Office of Education, a story which made the front page of the Washington Post, clamped the cuffs on him and charged him with the five Ps, pimping, pandering, prostitution, pornography, and personal growth. Uh, I, I made up the personal growth part. Uh, um, and, he, and he went to jail. Uh, and, and But not before telling the judge, um, uh, I'm so sorry for what I've done. He said, I now recognize it for a sickness. And uh, I think his court uh, psychiatrist wanted the judge to believe that it was a clinical sickness uh, called sexual addiction. In fact, Hal turned up as a chapter later in a book on sexual addiction, but I don't think that was his sickness. I think it was, it was experiential education. It was the philosophy behind D.A.R.E., which says that nobody can tell you what to do better than you can tell yourself after consulting your feelings. Well, it, it killed Raina Shirley, and that's the story that I'd like to end with. Uh, David, I'm not sure where we need to go here. I'll figure it out in a minute. But uh, let me tell you what happened to Raina Shirley. Um, Raina Shirley uh, was an eighth, grade, um, eighth grader at Potter Valley Middle School um, in uh, Potter Valley, California, not too far from the ranch where David grew up and where Jeannie and I still live in Mendocino County. She had gone through six years of Catholic elementary school in Ukiah at Our Lady uh, St. Mary of the Angels, and then she went on to the middle school, the public middle school in Potter Valley, and she was a charming and assertive young woman, and she became the student body president. Um, let's see, what, what can I tell you in the brief time that I have available? D.A.R.E. puts no emphasis on religion. Uh, only on pop psychology, but unfortunately they had adopted the D.A.R.E. program over a four-year period in the uh, Catholic elementary school. She had four years of D.A.R.E., uh, and I think that she learned the wrong lesson. She learned that the most important thing was to do what she most deeply wanted. There is an exercise on page 25 of the D.A.R.E. manual for kids which teaches them, don't let anybody push you into doing something you don't want to do. And I'm afraid that too many kids uh, learn from that. If I don't want to do my homework, by golly, my parents are not going to push me into it. And if I don't want to abstain from drugs, by golly, I shan't. And the research suggests that that's precisely what a significant number of them learned. Raina was a good student. She developed a view of the human potential that, in an important sense, set her against common sense, at least that part of common sense available to the tribe of Catholic elders at her elementary school. A classmate at Raina's memorial service, a classmate announced to the press and the public that Raina had come to believe, quote, that the greatest pleasure in life is doing what people say you cannot do. The idea, perhaps, that only thus can you be assured that your choice is really not your parents' choice, but your own choice. As bright and assertive as Raina was, the fact is that she was still a child, 
a child, however, no longer occupied by the thoughts and values of her parents and her church, but rather with her own. She set aside her parents' protective values in favor of what the advertisers, the dealer, and the peer group might have to tell her from among which she could then choose. But children are not capable of free choice, most especially, most especially of illegal activities. Uh, thank God for the research in neuroscience of recent uh, vintage, which proves to us all that the, uh, the children don't have a whole brain. The wiring isn't done yet. Uh, decisions uh, of life and death matters are not for children. Well, at the Eel River on the 13th of March, 1996, Raina, between classes, went to a party. The Eel River is not too far from the middle school in Potter Valley. She snorted methamphetamine, a whole lot of it, and she went out of her head, started eating rocks and stones. She was raped then by a classmate, and with the boost from the classmate's uncle, the drug dealer, she was tossed into the icy water. As I say, this happened between classes when she should have been on campus. Reports were that she was not dragged to the river but chose to go. Having made, I suppose, a risk assessment, D.A.R.E. teaches children to make what they call risk assessments, she must have decided for herself that the risk of going to the river between classes for a party was okay. To have become persuaded that there might be such a risk to consider as going to the river for drugs and, as it turned out, for sex, led to tragedy. In actuality, there is no more a choice for a good eighth grade girl to snort drugs and have sex than there is for her to drive on the wrong side of the divided highway that runs near the bend in the Eel River, where three weeks later, Raina Shirley's body was found. She was the apple of her parents' eye. The local newspaper reports that Raina's parents, Nathan and Kimberly Shirley, have now split up. The mother has left for Mexico. The father has left for Florida. They have moved themselves as far as possible from the scene of their only child's undoing. Thank you. At this time, we'd like uh, to offer a chance for questions and um, brief comments. Right line up right here next to the wall, and I'll do my Phil Donahue impression and let you have a chance to speak. Charlie Richardson from Huntington, New York. Uh, my own school district has some PTA pressure to put the D.A.R.E. program in from all they've heard, of course, about it. And I'm uh, in a position I would like to offer them some alternative. Uh, I've heard all of the downside of, of D.A.R.E. I've read the things in Reason Magazine and other things. But we need the community is hurting from the evidence that drug use is increasing at increasingly younger ages. And I'm pointing out things in our curriculum. We're looking at changes in curriculum, but need something positive in the way of, of drug education that's going to hopefully turn the tide of their thinking. Uh, do you know any program that, for instance, 
takes kids to institutions where they can see these 20-year-olds whose brains have been totally wiped out by drugs and something that will scare them straight. Uh, there used to be a program called Scared Straight in New Jersey. I don't, and it, for a while it was a national model. Does anybody know if that still goes on? They, uh, they, they, they did exactly what you're suggesting, Charlie. Uh, one thing that Jeannie and I have tried in Mendocino County, which is in the Emerald Triangle where the high-quality sensomia comes from, so uh, Mendocino County kids are raised at a disadvantage. They, they, uh, sometimes their parents grow marijuana and they can offer it to dealers from the city in return for crack cocaine, for example, and methamphetamine. Uh, what we've done is to approach these kids uh, not as uh, potential or present drug users themselves, but as uh, potential uh, parents who will be predictably as concerned about drug use as their own parents are. And, and we give them an anonymous survey which always establishes that they don't want their children uh, even to smoke. For example, if they smoke themselves, they're all the more determined that their children will not fall into this habit. And so we commend them for being so smart, and then we tell them uh, how they can have what they want, which is not to tell them how they can get their way with their children, but how they can get what's right. They are so eager to be told what's right, and they want to hear it again and again until it lodges uh, in their brain in such a way that it can't be removed. Uh, Carl Rogers grew up in such a home where his parents uh, uh, read to him every night and preached to him and, and gave him Bible verses and in the midst of his involvement in the human potentials movement when he thought it was better to be a person than to be the child of his parents, he couldn't escape the net that they had cast over him and, and later it kept him out of trouble. Uh, when Hal uh, Lyon went to jail, Carl Rogers was quoted on the first page of the Washington Post as saying it's incredible, but it really wasn't, it was predictable because Hal had, Hal had fallen for the line that Carl couldn't fall for. So I would suggest that kids be approached as incipient parents, and I think that might help. Andrew Ewing, Meadville, Pennsylvania. I have a, a comment and a, a question attached to it. Uh, we have a, a word in English that aptly fits this program um, in, in etymological origin, and that's idiocy. Um, because the, the uh, origin of that from the Greek is idios, which means personal or private. And so what uh, we're having here is teaching these children that they can have their own personal and private understanding of reality, mm -hmm. which makes them idiots because they can no longer function in a larger objective reality. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that in uh, the larger context of the, the slip of society into relativism. Sam, why don't you go ahead? Well, the only the point I wanted to make about this business of, of drugs in the schools, of course, you know what uh, Nancy Reagan coined the phrase, you know, just say no. But every day, four million children in public schools must say yes because they're given Ritalin. They're given this pill, which is mind-altering drug. And so if you're told to say yes to drugs in the morning, and then in the afternoon, a fellow student offers you a little pill and he says, this will make you feel even better. Well, why should the child say no? You see, so one of the reasons I believe that drug, is, uh, drug usage is on the increase among youngsters in school is because this prevalence of giving out drugs to kids every day, Ritalin. And uh, we're not going to be able to get rid of Ritalin overnight but it's become a real problem. 
Yeah, I'd like to second that point. It's really it's, uh, almost amusing to see the hypocrisy of the schools drive by all the signs that says drug-free school zone, and then you see the kids lined up outside the principal's office to get uh, doped up for the day. Uh, and it, it's kind of funny, too, because it seems at some, at some points, some comments have been made that the part of the reason that the kids are given those drugs is so the kids will stay in school and the school can get its uh, government subsidy, which is based on the per daily attendance. So, I mean, it's a profoundly corrupting incentive for the fellow schools, but it works out well for the, uh, for the school's budget, so. What I would like to comment on is that the keynote of uh, D.A.R.E. seems to be that there's no such concept as responsibility. Mm -hmm. So there's no responsibility for yourself in the future and what will happen to your brain as a result of taking these drugs and there's no responsibility to your family or to the society or to your religion. There's no concept of responsibility. And it seems to me that the whole idea of a lot of education is the abdication of responsibility, freedom without responsibility. The only point I may uh, want to make is, is what Tom Gordon says. You have the right to choose your own values. Well, how can a 10-year-old, you know, the greatest philosophers of all time worked on that problem and never really solved it. Now we're expecting 10-year-olds to choose their own values, which means choose your own morality. And that, of course, leads to moral anarchy. That's the only thing it can lead to. Yeah, a second problem, too, is that if the uh, kids are getting their, their values from law enforcement, then the most important value the kids are going to receive is to be submissive, uh, be to, to be submissive to the government authorities. And that's uh, not a value that we've favored in American society, at least in the American myth culture. I mean, um, there, uh, there are times, I mean, it's important for the, uh, for the, um, there seems to be designed to supplant the government's authority for the parents' authority. And it's far more effective at doing that than a lot of people realize, and that's also one of the worst things about the program. So, anyhow. Ramble, ramble. Uh, Dr. Colson, uh, you may recall being in Portland, Oregon. I'm, I'm Jim Hill from Portland, Oregon. Uh, you may recall being in Portland a few years ago, and uh, we were at the Portland School District discussing drug education with the head of the department mm -hmm. there. And uh, uh, she asked you, mm -hmm. Uh, if you could make any suggestions as to what would be an effective program. And uh, you should su suggest it to her that one of the things she might consider would be to bring in uh, some of the top people from the leading advertising agency in the city and discuss with them how they sell their products with their advertising. And I wonder if yeah, you might Yeah, I remember that very well, Jim. I've often thought about that. She said, well, uh, Dr. Colson, we prefer to teach our children to think. Uh, I, I said, why don't you tell them over and over and over again what to do about drugs, and that is to eschew them. And I don't know that she knew the meaning of that word, but uh, we prefer to teach them to think. And I said, but you've got to give them something to think with. As it is now, the, uh, the children's minds are stuffed with the dicta of the uh, peer group and uh, the dealers. You've got to give them something to think with. Uh, they talk a lot about higher order thinking, and I'm afraid what they really mean by that is original thinking, and what they mean by that is thinking that's unprecedented in your own home. 
you, you will become a higher order thinker when you stop thinking like your parents did. So there's something quite subversive about all of this. I, I, I want to grant everyone's good intentions in this because I want them granted to those of us who began this whole foolish enterprise, but I do think it's quite subversive. We have time for one brief question. The rule of law says that we are to be innocent of evil, but understand that which is good. And uh, drugs, sexual promiscuity or sexual immorality, and suicide are all evil. But in the 50s, and then the 70s, and then the 80s, we ended up with the uh, drug education, yeah. all of the different educations. Question. Is there any likelihood that we, who are in the so-called conservative uh, uh, program, would ever raise the question that the various types of education violate the rule of law? Neil Markford. You know, it really is sort of ridiculous for us to discuss what's going on in the public schools when the only solution is to get rid of them. I mean, you know, that, that's the problem. We can discuss, we can discuss all of the problems. Dare is just one of the problems that, that confront us because of this government education system, which has gone crazy. So we're just concentrating on one area of insanity in this, in an entirely insane system. And so there's really not much point in our discussing this because we're not going to get rid of Ritalin. We can't save the kids in the public schools. The only thing that we can really work for is to get the government out of the education business. I'm, I'm told that I get the last two minutes. And uh, again, I, I want to thank uh, everyone for the opportunity to be here. I want to thank especially uh, my son David for coming to help me. David, let's uh, put up that next one. Um, this is Carl Rogers. Uh, uh, disowning of the um, uh, the whole method of Rogerian or non-directive uh, psychotherapy. Uh, I am not alone in condemning what happened. Uh, he he said, "I hope Rogerian therapy goes down the drain." Yes, you can try to grow to be more often empathic and more often feel an unconditional regard for this person, but it's not something you should do, and that puzzles people until they understand what had gone wrong for people like Hal. Carl, it broke his heart when he heard that Hal had gone to jail. I, I said that Hal didn't mind my telling the story, and that's because he's got kids of his own, and he says, I don't want them corrupted. That's why it's okay to tell the story. He said, you know, I wouldn't have those books in my home anymore. And I said, you mean the ones that you wrote? He said, yeah, but the ones you wrote too. He said, uh, and when I said, well, why is that? I really knew the answer, and it was that he didn't want his children corrupted. Well, now a lot of our children can't read, but they're still corruptible, aren't they? And they're corruptible by bringing these methods orally into the classroom. Let's end on a, on a funny note. This is uh, uh, from uh, R.J. Reynolds, uh, which is uh, having killed off Joe Camel, now has right decisions right now in your schools. Uh, this came across uh, my desk at the same time that the story was breaking in the newspaper about uh, Marv uh, Albert uh, biting people in hotels. And uh, so uh, th there are lots of wall posters that come with this 
material. It's in 10,000 junior high schools the, and middle schools, the people at Reynolds tell me this program, that to the 10,000 stupid superintendents of school who have allowed Joe Camel's uh, creators to come in now with a program for kids to discuss how to make their own decisions about deadly activities. Well, uh, as this story was uh, breaking, uh, it came to my mind that the father, this is the only poster that has to do with parents, and of course the parents are, are, are looking very glum and angry. The father is shaking his finger at, her, at his daughter and saying, I've told you not to bite your little sister. And the mother is looking um, rather um, disappointed, says, and nobody ever bites me. Um, so, um, well, let's see, let's do one more, David. In that case, yes, that wasn't such a good joke after all. Um, here's, uh, let's do the, the next two, okay? Uh, here's here's R.J. Reynolds that says that uh, uh, young people are unable and un or unwilling to turn to their parents for guidance, and this simply isn't true. And finally, David, the last one. This is not true. This is from public agenda. Uh, faith in God is important to 66% of American youngsters aged 12 to 17. I can always trust my parents to be there for me, say 81% of American teens. It's a very foolish thing when we let anyone come into the school and say otherwise. Thank you very much. The end of this tape, thank you for listening.